Are you tired of your digestive system feeling like a circus act gone wrong? Introducing Ritual's 3-in-1 Gut Superhero Symbiotic Plus, a probiotic, prebiotic, and postbiotic all rolled into one. And with 25% off with the code POWER, there's no better time to check out Ritual. Let's break it down. Probiotics are like the cool kids at the gut party, keeping everything in check and making sure the good vibes are flowing. Prebiotics are their wingmen, fueling the party with all the right snacks to keep the good bacteria thriving. And postbiotics, well, they're like the cleanup crew, sweeping away the mess and leaving your gut feeling fresh and fabulous. So say goodbye to the gut drama and remember, there's no more shame in your gut game. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide your insides. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com power. Tossing and turning all night like a salad? It's time to put those sleepless nights to bed for good. Enter Tanasi, my sleep saviors, and they have science to back up their sleep, anxiety, and pain-relieving powers. Back in 2016, they invested a $2.5 million grant to Middle Tennessee State University to study the hemp plant. Turns out their special patent-pending CBD-CBDA formula is twice as effective as CBD alone and can be more effective than over-the-counter ibuprofen, acetaminophen, and aspirin. So if you're tired of tossing and turning like a rotisserie chicken, then Tanasi's got your back with their range of great products from tinctures to gummies to lotions. Tanasi is my go-to when I can't sleep or I have way too much anxiety. I'm so glad that I discovered them. So go to Tanasi.com and use the code POWER to get 25% off your order. That's Tanasi.com, T-A-N-A-S-I, to get 25% off your first order with the promo code POWER. Sober Powered is sponsored by BetterHelp. I was a stress drinker and I thought if only I didn't have so much stress, I wouldn't have to drink this much. But do you know why I had all this stress? Because I didn't have the skills to take stressors off my plate so they built up and wore me down. Some stressors are big and others are small, but carrying around 25 minor annoyances is going to have an impact on you. Plus, did you know that alcohol messes with our stress response system and decreases our ability to handle stress? It makes small things seem like a much bigger deal. Learning how to manage stress and take things off my plate has changed my life. I'm calm, I'm less reactive, and I believe that I can handle whatever comes my way. I feel proud of the way that I handle things now. You can get there too. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com sober to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash sober. You may be on the lookout for other external things to provide comfort and excitement when you stop drinking. And impulse buying or comfort spending can definitely pop up in sobriety. In this episode, I talked to Tori Dunlap from her first 100K about how we can improve our financial habits in sobriety. In last week's episode, we spoke about transfer addiction, and Tori and I continue that conversation today with money habits. Although Tori's expertise is in finance, she brought so much wisdom to this episode that applies directly to our experience with sobriety. You especially need to listen to the end where we discuss self-worth and shame. Tori is the founder of her first 100K, which she created to help fight financial inequality by giving women actionable resources to better their money. 
She's also the host of the top business podcast, Financial Feminist, and her book, Financial Feminist, is coming out in a couple days. So I hope that you will check out her podcast and her book to learn more about her amazing work. So let's get to the conversation. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm really excited to have you on. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. So one of the things that you're most well known for is that you saved up $100,000 um, by the time you were 25. So I'm curious why that was a priority for you. Like, why were you passionate about that goal? Yeah, I think the 100K meant that I was or that I felt comfortable enough to quit my job to take my business full time. One of the things that I talk about in my work a lot is that these financial goals, you know, whether that's becoming debt free or saving money or starting to invest, right, or hitting a certain number, they don't really matter until you give them a why, right? They don't really matter. A, a number doesn't really matter until you understand why you're doing it. One, it's going to keep you a lot more motivated. And two, it allows your goals to be realized so that 100K was, yes, about, you know, seeing that $100,000 in, in the bank, but also about the, the nest egg and the fresh start or the, the jumpstart I needed to be able to feel confident to take my business full time. I was running her first 100K as a, a side hustle. I was working a nine to five in marketing and growing my business on the side. I hit my 100K goal. I was celebrating in Europe. I got a call for Good Morning America. I did the interview and I quit my job three weeks after that and um, haven't looked back since. And so I feel like that 100K was the, the permission slip I needed to feel comfortable pursuing entrepreneurship full time. I like that. I became a full-time entrepreneur about six months ago and I had, I didn't have the same goal, but I had a financial goal myself. So I can really identify with that. When I first started discovering you and, and learning about your work, one of the things that really excited me was that you gave us permission to get lattes if they make us happy and, and like focus on the things that actually make you happy and you don't have to give up everything. But how do you determine like what truly makes you happy? And what is something that you could actually give up? I love this question. Yeah. So I say that you don't have to stop spending money. You just have to stop spending money on shit you don't care about. And so determining what you care about is really the big thing, right? So if it is lattes, great. If it's, I don't know, NFL season tickets, great. You don't have to stop spending money, but we do need you to be more mindful about it. Deprivation doesn't work. You may have heard other financial experts tell you to stop spending money, to completely deprive yourself. And we know that 99% of diets don't work because the more you tell me I can't have fried chicken, the more I want fried chicken. And that's not a willpower thing. That's a literal psychology thing. So instead of deprivation, which doesn't work and is frankly no fucking fun, what we do is I have people identify what their three value categories are. These are the three areas in their, your life where you get the most joy. And I talk about this more. We have a whole chapter on like mindful spending in my book, Financial Feminist. But really, it's about identifying the three areas in your life where you want the majority of your discretionary money to go. And these are the three areas that you love, not necessarily what somebody else tells you you should love or what they love. For me, this is travel, food out. And I say nesting, but really it's plants. And I don't know if you can see the video, but I have a plant behind me. I have like six plants right here and another six over here. So yeah, plant babies are my favorite. That's where the majority of my money is going because it gives me the most joy. 
I do occasionally buy Starbucks. I buy candles at TJ Maxx, right? That's just not where the majority of my money is going. And so an exercise that, you know, anybody listening can do is identify, okay, what three things do I get the most joy out of? Or what are those three categories? And is the majority of my money going to those three things? If not, either you've misaligned your categories, they're actually something else, or you're not spending according to your values. And that's an easy tweak. It's just making sure that you are spending according to the things that you love and bring you the most joy because you worked really hard for your money. And I want your money to be able to work as hard as it can for you. I like that. And I like that it's three categories. I think that's easy to remember. And there aren't like all these complex rules. I think I'm going to list mine out after we talk. Um, So most of my audience is sober or trying to get sober. And when you're actively drinking or using drugs, it's very expensive (laughs) to, to keep that up. If you're a daily drinker, it's just very expensive to do that. And on top of it, you know, we might do some impulse buying when we're drunk or going out a lot and people's finances suffer a lot during that time. Some people generate a lot of debt or their credit score takes a huge hit. And on top of coming into sobriety with all the new challenges that we face, now we also have terrible finances or, or no savings or awful credit score. And we, how do you like get out of a hole like that? Yeah. I mean, addiction or at the very least habit is very, very expensive, right? I think the first thing is just to offer yourself a lot of grace. Unfortunately, that's a novel concept in the personal finance community is like giving yourself, cutting yourself some slack. But especially if you have this sort of relationship with uh, any sort of vice that is addictive, that is out of your control right? You are the sober expert. I am not, but I know enough about addiction to know that there's a certain precipice where, you know, that is not in your control anymore. And it is a disease. Even if it is just at this point, a bad habit you're trying to kick, give yourself a ton of grace, give yourself a bunch of understanding. No one was taught about money. Like we are not socially conditioned to learn about money or to discuss money. We're more likely to actually talk about any other uncomfortable topic before we'll talk about money, sex, death, politics, religion, anything else. So understand that this is completely normal, that you're potentially feeling shame and uh, frustration and fear about your money. And that again, more shame, more judgment, especially you inflicting that upon yourself doesn't help at all. So grace, mercy for yourself. The second thing is to just start really, really small. I think whenever we set goals for ourselves, we think we need to make these big sweeping changes. And of course that doesn't work. (laughs) Again, back to the not willpower, but literal psychology thing. It's like our brain can't handle that much. Uh, Our brain can't handle that much change. So rather than being like, okay, overnight, I'm going to completely revamp my finances. I'm just going to make small steps. Okay. I'm going to start saving $20 every week. That's all I can do right now. That's all I got, but I'm going to start doing it. One progress over perfection is hundred percent what we're aiming for. And you will see, you know, savings start to add up. But the other thing, the other reason we do it is to build good habits so that when you do feel more financially confident and hopefully you do have more money, you have already started practicing how to manage your money, right? You've already built that muscle so that it just feels natural to you. The third thing is Uh, in addition to offering yourself grace, starting small is to create a plan that is like we were talking about before, very mission driven and why driven the amount of times people come to me and they're like, I'm going to get good with money this next year. And I'm like, that doesn't mean anything. I don't know what getting good with money looks like to you. It's not measurable. It's not specific. It's just like, "Ah, I'm going to do it right. And the intent is there, which I love, but you need to be way more specific. 
So let's change that rather than saying, I want to get good with money. Let's say I want to save money this year. Okay, great. Let's get even more specific. I want to save a thousand dollars this year. Cool. Okay. Why? I want to save a thousand dollars this year to go to Europe this summer. Great. So now we not only have a reason to care, we have a very specific dollar amount. We have a specific time and we can do the math. If I want to go this summer and it's January, well, then you got about six months, right? You got about six months to save that thousand dollars and you can do the math. A thousand divided by six. That's the amount of money you need to be putting away every month. So when you are setting some sort of goals, one, again, start small, but two, make them really specific, tangible and mission driven in order to get yourself to care. Yeah. And it's the same thing with not drinking. We'll say, you know, that's it. I'm not drinking this week. I'm never going to touch alcohol again. Yeah. (laughs) Yep. And then, you know, there's no real reason. Like we just feel that we should. So I really like that you said that we, we all feel that we should be better with money, but if there's no real point, then eventually that's not going to get you very far. Shoulds are like such the enemy of just any sort of progress. (laughs) Like, And of like authentic living as like cheesy and life coachy as that sounds like if you don't want to buy a house, don't buy a house just because you've been told it's what you should do. Right. If you don't want to work a nine to five. Great. Don't work a nine to five. If we can get there. Right. I think there's a lot of shoulds in our lives, but specifically when it comes to money. And that's why we're talking about value categories. And I always say that personal finance is personal. You have to identify what matters to you rather than trying to fit yourself in a box that somebody else created for you. Yeah. And your desires and wants might be different from someone else. And that's, you know, they can spend their money on that and you spend your money on your thing and we all are happy. And they probably will be, they will be different. And so it's first understanding that other people's habits or wants or desires are going to be different, but also making sure that you know what yours are. I think that's a thing I see a lot as people are like, I don't know what I want. And that's the first thing, actually, you know, before before we even set goals, before we even do anything, what do you want? What does uh, your life look like if you are financially stable? How can you use money as a tool to build the life that you want? And what life do you want? Yeah. And a lot of times we don't have time to actually reflect on that. When someone gets sober, a lot of times we think like, okay, I'll just stop drinking. I'm good. I did it. But there's a lot behind it. Like we drank for a reason. And in sobriety, people can go find other methods of comforting themselves, whether that's food, sugar is a really common one for sober people, or spending money. And some people go from drinking a bunch of alcohol to spending a bunch of money. Or like I combine a couple of them and mine is takeout. It's a really weird one, but I love to get takeout. And it's so expensive. It's really not necessary at all. And I feel like guilt and it's a little like chaotic and, you know, makes my life more interesting in a negative way. But what can we do if we find ourselves comforting ourselves or using money to deal with emotions? I mean, again, I'm going to sound like a broken record. Grace first. And the understanding you just said it, which is like, this is so common. And again, I have, uh, I am not as knowledgeable about addiction, but I know that it is common to replace one addiction with another, hopefully less intense one, right? See, like a lot of like people who are trying to smoke, stop smoking, like become addicted to Diet Coke, right? So first thing, grace and mercy. Second thing, 
you just need to be mindful of what's happening before you start to change anything in a non-shaming, non-guilty way. I want you to become an anthropologist in your own life. Interesting. I bought that pair of shoes I didn't need and didn't want because I had a shit day, right? My boss made me feel like shit today. Interesting, right? And you can start to journal about this. And we actually have a practice that we discuss in the book and on the podcast, literally called a money journal or a money diary, where you're just writing down everything you spend money on. And you're not doing it to shame yourself, right? You're just like, where's my money going? And again, does it bring me joy? And so you're just viewing your purchases through the lens of somebody journaling that is impartial. That's like, this thing happened for this reason. Interesting conclusion. You have to figure out where your money's going before you can make any sort of plan to change it. And you have to understand what sort of mindset or emotions you're feeling when it happens. Because money is psychological. It's emotional. The whole first chapter of my book, I spend talking about the emotions of money. It's the longest chapter. It's the chapter I spent the most time on. And we do that before like getting a budget together or learning how to invest for a reason. It's the first chapter for a reason. And so you have to understand what sort of emotional triggers are happening in order for you to be uh, more honest with yourself and also for your relationship with money to improve. I imagine as well, if you, this is something, uh, a bad habit that you were addicted to alcohol, drugs, whatever, and that you're now replaced that addiction. Um, hopefully you've sought professional help. A professional will also be able to help you in terms of spending addictions or in terms of emotional spending. So if you do have that option, seek therapy, therapy is never a bad thing. So that's a great resource. And there's actually specifically financial therapists who can help with this as well. Specific people who work with, you know, money trauma issues with around money monitoring your spending, understanding why you're spending your money, where it's going, and then evaluating if you're spending according to your values. And most likely if this is like some sort of binge spending, uh, especially repeatedly, this is not according to your values and it's not what you care about. And I think even to your point, right? Takeout inherently isn't a bad thing. Like I order plenty of takeout, but if you have acknowledged that this is something that Yep, you're either addicted to or something that happens a lot and you feel icky because of it. That's different than just, again, one of your value categories where you're like, I'm spending the majority of my money here and I love it. If you've identified it's a problem, it's probably a problem. (laughs) If you know that it's a problem, it's a problem. And so understanding where you're at and working to, um, again, without shame or judgment, understand what your triggers are, where your emotions are coming from in order to be more mindful. Did you ever struggle with something like that? Like either impulse spending or like emotional spending or something that you had to work on, I guess, becoming aware of? I think one of the things that a lot of people don't realize is like, so I grew up with parents who were very dedicated to teaching me about money. That was part of my story. And they always chose the stable option for me which I'm very thankful for because, you know, I had a very stable upbringing. We never had to worry about food on the table, both from a place of privilege, but also my parents worked really hard and made really strategic decisions to make sure that could happen. And my dad had always wanted to be an entrepreneur. And uh, I mean, he's in his early 60s now, and it's not looking like that's ever going to be his reality because he chose the stable option. He chose the 401k, the health insurance to make sure that you know, he and his family were taken care of. So when I was on the precipice of quitting my job, I literally had my parents calling me and saying, You need to do everything you can to keep your job. Even this quote unquote, like good perspective around money was biting me in the ass because I wasn't comfortable with risk. I wasn't comfortable making the quote unquote unstable choice or non-stable choice, even though this thing was like relatively low risk. Like, okay, if it didn't work, I could go back and get another job. I had money in the bank. I had momentum in my business. Everything was going to work out, but I had the perceived perspective that this was going to be 
really risky. And so I waited a very long time, longer than I probably should have to quit my job and run my business because I was like, what? There's no stable paycheck. There's no health insurance. How do I even get health insurance? I have no idea. And so like even these quote unquote, like good money experiences or money memories that we have, have the opportunity to surprise us. It was, it was a really interesting shift for me of like this thing I've always viewed as uh, you know, a smart choice if I hadn't quit my job, well, one, I'd be less happy than I am. Two, I'd have way less money. And three, I'd have way less flexibility. Um, and I wouldn't be able to have impacted the people we've impacted. So it worked out, but I had to overcome the belief that the stable choice was always the right choice. I felt exactly the same way, actually. When I was considering doing this, I was like, what if 15 years from now, I fail and then like I have this big gap in my resume and then like people Google me and see like <laughs> you're like, yeah, what if you do like life is so short. We get I mean, depending on, I guess, your religion or your spirituality. I think for most of us, we believe we get one shot at this and it's like, great. OK, I need to I need to do this and I need to see this through. And if it doesn't work, OK. I can describe how it didn't work in a job interview and the right company will not judge me for that and will actually think I'm pretty fucking amazing for trying to pursue this thing and learning a lot from it. So, but again, I had my parents literally in my ear going like, you need to keep your job. You need to keep your job because they always chose the stable option. And that was a really great opportunity for me to understand that sometimes the risk is a hundred percent worth the reward. And sometimes that risk is more perceived than actual. How did you fight through that and decide that like this was a good choice for you? I can imagine you went back and forth, maybe like, maybe I should just work here and keep this as a side hustle or, or like, maybe this isn't going to work out. And so how did you really like commit? The universe made the decision for me, which is how I know it was long <laughs> overdue. Things got really sticky at my nine to five. My boss, my direct boss was really supportive of me, but the two other leaders at the company did not like how successful my business was getting and were starting to make up stories about how that success was coming about. And so it got to the point where I was like, okay, it's no longer healthy to stay here. Um, they're accusing me of things that aren't true. And it was, yeah, it was the universe pushing me and being like, okay, you're not going to do it. I'm going to do it for you. We're going to, we're going to push you. I think the other thing too, I have this theory that there's two kinds of entrepreneurs. One kind is like the fling themselves off the cliff and they'll figure out the parachute on the way down. And that works for some people because they need that. Like they literally need the energy of, okay, this has to work out because if not, I'm going splat. And for me, I'm just not that kind of person. I'm like, okay, before I jump off the cliff, I need a parachute. I need a backup parachute. I need a third backup parachute. I need the 911 call over here. I need this. Also, if you know, I can just ride an airplane, that's going to be easier. Like that was me. I was just like prepping every single thing I possibly could to feel as secure as possible. If you are the person who wants to become an entrepreneur, you kind of have to figure out like, are you the you fling yourself from the cliff and figure it out on the way down? Or are you the person who needs to feel as secure as possible in order to take the leap? And it was actually my boss at my nine to five. We had a really candid conversation where it was clear that like things were getting a little sticky at the, I mean, beyond a little sticky at my job. And like, I wasn't going to be able to win the other, the other leaders over the other executives over. And he was like, entrepreneur to entrepreneur, you have money in the bank. You have momentum in your business. You just got off good morning, America. Like there's no reason to not do this. And that was another, yet another confirmation of like, okay, this needs to happen now. So submitted my resignation the next day. That's amazing. Yeah, that's really cool. Crazy to think about. That happened, God, three years ago, a little over three years ago now, which is just crazy. 
And now you have an amazing book coming out. Yeah. Um, that I'm literally, I just, it just got delivered yesterday to my apartment. And so this is like, yesterday is the first day I got to like hold this like physical manifestation of so much hard work. So it's been very thrilling. That's really special. So for people that they grew up and they didn't learn the financial skills that you did, and they just like, they don't even know. Besides putting a certain amount towards savings every week or every month, what's another place that they can start to, I guess, learn or or make some progress, either one? I mean, the financial education I received from my parents was 100% a privilege, and I acknowledge it as such. And with that privilege comes a responsibility, which is why I do the work that I do. I mean, we have obviously the book, the podcast called Financial Feminist. We have so many free resources and paid resources out there for people. Um, And I am by no means the only one doing this work. Like there are so many people out there who, you know, are financial educators who can help guide you. We have an entire chapter in the book called the financial game plan, which is like what to do in what order. So that emergency fund is the first thing of setting aside money for emergencies. It should be at least three months of living expenses in a high yield savings account. But again, this is in chapter four. We have to spend three chapters getting, no, chapter three. We have to spend two chapters getting up to that. Chapter one is the emotional side of money. And chapter two is all about spending. Because again, if we don't figure out where our money's going, if we haven't overcome our financial trauma, or at least learn to better understand it, we can't make financial strides. So before you, you know, get a budget together, before you get a savings plan together, one, identifying your value categories, like we talked about earlier, two, figuring out if the majority of your money is actually going to those value categories, and then three, setting up an automatic transfer. So you can go in, if you have a traditional nine to five job, you can say, okay, I want 10% of every paycheck automatically put into this bank account. And if you don't, or you don't have that service, um, you can say, okay, uh, I want 10%. Once it hits my checking account, twice a month moved over. And again, you can do... 10%, 20%, whatever you got, even if it's just $20 a month, that's better than nothing. We're building the habit and it's also happening on autopilot without you having to think about it. Plenty of people wait to the end of the month to start saving and then there's nothing left over to save. So we're doing what we call in the industry, paying yourself first. It's like you're another bill, right? It's like Netflix taking out, you know, your $17 or whatever it is now a month to, you know, have your subscription. You are, you're, you know, you're subscribing to future use protection and future use great life. So making sure you're setting aside money for fun stuff, again, those value categories right now, but also for future you. Why do you think this stuff is so hard for people to learn? Because no one fucking taught us this, like (laughs) truly, but like the system, this is a whole thesis of my work and of my book is like, especially if you're a member of a marginalized group, I work largely with women, like no one taught us this. And also you're conditioned to not pursue money. Men are conditioned to pursue money and to pursue wealth. And then women are shamed if they have the audacity to do that. There's so many narratives that that prevent you from learning about money. One that is so common is that talking about money is taboo, right? I was talking about this earlier. We will talk about any other uncomfortable topic before we'll talk about money. And I don't think that's an accident. I think that narrative is perpetuated to keep marginalized groups underpaid and overworked. Uh, The second thing is that like money is bad or evil and that the pursuit of wealth is bad or evil. A stack of government issued paper has no moral value. It's a stack of paper. It's the value we ascribe to it or what we do with that, right? That has moral value. Now there's plenty of people who are using money for really fucking corrupt things. There's also plenty of people who are using money for really joyful, incredibly generous things. And the pursuit of wealth is not inherently bad, unless you're pursuing it for the wrong reasons. So I think that's another narrative. The third is that just like all of this is complicated. Like you're told that it's complicated. I majored in organizational communication and theater in college. I did not study finance. I did not study business. I'm a fucking theater major. And now I'm a finance expert. 
you don't have to be quote unquote good with math. You don't have to be good with numbers. It's really just about using money as a tool to build the life that you want. And again, I think a lot of people have told you it's complicated in order to keep their jobs. (laughs) Like we see like people in the finance industry, especially like Wall Street bros have told you that investing or the stock market or anything money is scary and intimidating so that you will pay them to do it instead. And actually statistics have proven that when you pay them to do it, they actually don't perform as well as when you do it yourself. So I think that there's many narratives or many barriers in place here. And again, this is why I put so much of it in the book is every single chapter. The first half is like, okay, what is, what is the lay of the land? How did we get here? What sort of narratives have we been meant to believe about spending, about debt, about investing, about earning money? And then what can we do to overcome those narratives and actually work to change our money and change the world around us? I think that's a really good point. I don't invest at this time, but I believe that it's really complicated, but I don't know. I've never tried it. It's not. I like to think, um, one, you need a good teacher. And I like to think that I make it less intimidating for people. And there's, again, plenty of other people out there. But two, again, you've been told it's complicated, so you don't do it. You have been told that investing is complicated, so you don't do it. So what if someone is listening and they want to take control of their finances and they want to identify their three value categories and they set a goal, but they work a very low paying job and they don't have like a lot of opportunities to get a better job? How can they start to like take control and and feel that they're making progress? So this is the question that I have grappled with for years. And it's a question that I get in almost every interview. We do what we can with the things we can control. And again, some progress, a little bit of progress is better than not progressing at all. So if all you can do again is like 20 bucks a month, great. That's amazing. However, when I talk about financial feminism, for me, that is not just your personal choices. Your personal choices are about 20% of the personal finance equation. Circumstances are like 80%. You can only control what you can control. And then we demand better of the system that exists. And if you are honest to goodness, living paycheck to paycheck, and maybe you're disabled, maybe you're a single mom who's already working really hard and you don't have two coins to rub together. Unfortunately, anything I or any financial expert can or will tell you is not going to help you much. And that's not me like not giving you an answer. That is, I think, the answer, which is this has to come with systemic change. It has to come with policy change and voting and protesting and supporting the legislators and the legislation that we want to see more of, because that is actually how change happens to help people who are on the fringes of the financial system. This is why for me, I define financial feminism as putting your oxygen mask on first and then taking care of others. If I am able to get myself financially stable If I am able to work to the point where I can put on my own oxygen mask, I can help others put on their oxygen mask or help make sure that everyone has an oxygen mask in the first place. I have taken care of myself financially. I'm good. Now my job is to redistribute, to run this company and to hopefully impact people, to give people jobs, to donate to organizations I believe in, to help others with their oxygen masks now. And to, again, hopefully create a system or start building a system where Everybody has the ability to have an oxygen mask. So that's the messy answer, but that's the truthful answer is if you are struggling, like truly struggling, we're not talking like living paycheck to paycheck, but still has a Netflix account. Like we're talking like actually struggling. This has to come with policy change. There is not an answer that I can give, especially as an individual with a private company that can help. It has to come with policy change. 
I really appreciate that answer. And I think every interview or episode of your podcast or everything I've seen from you, I can feel just how much you acknowledge like people that are not in the exact same situation as you. I hope so. No one, no one's in the same situation. Right. And like, I've worked so hard. <laughs> like, oh my God, have I worked hard. I also have a shit ton of privilege. I'm an able-bodied white woman who had a stable upbringing, right? Like there's a lot of privilege in that. And so I think, again, I said it before, personal finance is personal. Every single person is going to have to manage their money slightly differently because they have a different reality than anybody else. The bootstraps narrative, right, exists that if you are not poor or if you're not rich, it means you didn't work hard enough, right? That if you are poor, you're not working hard enough. That is such bullshit. (laughs) And it's still perpetuated in 2022, right? We see like Dave Ramsey and other financial experts still cite this of like, if you're struggling, it means you are not working hard enough. That's just such a gaslighty thing to say. And it's also just not true. It's it's systemic oppression. That's the answer to all of it. And the answer to, you know, bettering people's money is overcoming systemic oppression, which is not going to happen tomorrow and is not going to happen at the individual level. So it seems like a lot of this is same for sobriety, working on the emotional side of it, acknowledging what you can control and what's out of your control and focusing on that. So I guess as we develop the same life skills that we are in sobriety, our money situation can hopefully begin to improve, you know, depending on our situation. But I really appreciated that you acknowledge the emotional side. I think there's a lot that goes into it, both the emotional side and just our beliefs. Like I said, I don't invest because I think it's really hard, but I don't, I have no idea. Right. And I think these are my not so conspiracy conspiracy theory is that these narratives exist for a reason. Men, cisgendered straight white men are not taught these narratives, but you know who are? Women, people of color, members of the LGBTQ community, disabled people, right? These narratives are meant to keep us controllable because when you have money, you're no longer controllable. I can make any, almost pretty much any decision I want, but like when I have money, I have options, right? And again, this is why you need policy change to affect the things that you can't control, but I am no longer controllable because I have the money to leave situations I don't want to be in anymore. Yeah, all of it comes back to when you have money, you have choices, you have options. And that's that's the feeling I want for every single person, but especially every single woman is the ability to be in situations you want to be in, not situations you're forced to be in or situations you don't like or situations that feel really toxic and unhealthy. That's my life's work. And that's the mission of Her First Center K. You're amazing. Um, I have one more question for you before I let you go. But for people that have a gap, like people that maybe didn't work when they were at the end of their addiction, or they were a mother, like a stay at home mom, and now they're a single mom and need to work, and they have been out of the workforce for a while, and now they want to get back in and take better control of their life. What do you recommend for someone that just has like a lot of anxiety and fear about that situation? Just from a practical level, if you're like worried of like, how do I talk to a potential employer about this? Like, how do I explain this? You can be as transparent and vulnerable as you want. And if you are completely transparent, the right organization will not bat an eye. Right. And we'll actually see that as a huge strength, especially if you talk about it as such. I went through this hard time. I went through this, but here's how I've, here's what I've learned. And here's how I came out the other side. Right. Or if you're a stay at home mom, wow, (laughs) mothers, the the best team members, (laughs) you know how to manage your time. You know how to negotiate, you know, you know, everything. Right. And like what an incredible benefit to a team to have a parent on, on that team. So in terms of like just talking about it, 
again, it's your story. It's your life. You get to be as transparent and vulnerable as you want, but don't be afraid to be that vulnerable. I think in terms of like your own beliefs or your own narratives, one of the questions that I get probably the most frequent question that isn't about money that I get is like, how do I build my confidence? A lot of people are very sweet and they see me very confident and live in my life. And they go, how did, how are you so confident? How did that happen? Confidence is a worthiness issue. And I wish we talked about it like that because when you deem yourself worthy, you are confident in every aspect of your life. When I believe myself worthy of love, I show up in my relationships demanding that others see me as worthy. And if, again, like we were talking about with money, like if they don't, then that's not a relationship I want. If I'm showing up in my career and a job and believing I'm worthy of good opportunities and that I'm comp- that I deserve to be compensated well and that I deserve a healthy work environment, I won't tolerate anything less. And so if you are feeling fearful, it might be that you are questioning your own worthiness and you're questioning the worthiness of opportunities or of love or of belonging or all of these things that I think we as human beings struggle with at some point in our lives. So I would ask you to ask yourself, why do I not feel worthy? Why am I scared? And how can I build that worthiness or resilience muscle? Because again, when you believe yourself worthy, you will not tolerate anything less than worthiness. Wow. Thank you. That was actually like my selfish question that I didn't ask you, but thank you. for. I wanted to know, like, how are you such a badass? Like, hey, thank you. First of all, second of all, like I have never, I was talking about this on a recent podcast. I was on um, man enough with Justin Baldoni and Liz Plank and, and their team. And it was just so incredible. And literally their first question is like, when was the last time you haven't felt enough? And I'm, I know I felt that way, but I could not give them an answer because I was like, I think myself worthy. And again, this shouldn't be a novel concept, but we have been told repeatedly as women to not think ourselves worthy because that keeps us controllable. If we don't think ourselves worthy of healthy love, we will be in bad relationships. If we don't think ourselves worthy of money, we won't pursue it. If we don't think ourselves worthy of a good career opportunity, we will have imposter syndrome every day when we show up for work. I have never had a worthiness issue. I got a bunch of other issues, but I've never had a worthiness (laughs) issue. I believe myself worthy of love and opportunity and belonging and, and good things. And I think that, um, if you can start again, it's not going to be an overnight thing, but if you can start working towards that feeling of worthiness, you will show up different in every part of your life. Yeah. And addiction creates a major worthiness issue. Because there's so much shame, right? There's so much shame. There's so much shame with money. There's so much shame. There's so much shame in life in general. And shame. uh, (laughs) Just existing. Yeah. I mean, Brene Brown, right? That's like her whole thing is like, is, you know, she's a shame researcher. I don't know if she puts it in terms of worthiness, but I know that like shame and worthiness are, they're opposing forces. And if you can overcome that shame and realize again, that you are deserving and that you deserve grace and mercy, both from yourself and from others, that, that will make a huge impact. So like I said, you're a huge badass, in my opinion, and lots of other people's opinions, but you've done so many things. Like you have this cool business that's very successful. You help so many people. You have a book that I just like, I cannot wait to read it. And the cover is amazing. Like, what do you even do now? Like, what are Sleep. what are you focusing on? Sleep. That makes sense. <laughs> um, no, honestly, in 2023, I got a I got a question earlier of like what my New Year's resolution was today. And I was like, honestly, 
I am such a goal driven, ambitious person that I kind of want to intentionally not make goals for 2023, especially right now. Like I've never worked harder professionally on anything than writing and editing and marketing this book. And I am, um, finish lines in sight. And I'm just like sprinting to the finish and hoping I don't like trip and fall on the way. I've never, yeah, never worked harder. And I just need, I need a vacation. So Actually, my my intent for for next year, we're doing a lot of still cool things. We're going to keep a lot of momentum going with the business, but also I'm trying to find ways to set my own boundaries and take breaks and to allow, um, yeah, this this incredible mission of financial feminism to grow um, alongside of me as opposed to me having to to run the baton myself. I like that. I like that focus a lot. So besides getting your book and listening to your podcast, where can we connect with all of your amazing work. Thank you for having me. Um, Her First 100K is my company, H-E-R-F-I-R-S-T 100K. You can go to herfirst100k.com or at herfirst100k and all the socials. You can also yeah, find the Financial Feminist book or podcast wherever you get your books and wherever you're listening now. So thank you. We'd love to see you. Awesome. I will have all of those links in the show notes and just thank you again for coming on today, Tori. Thank you for having me. I so appreciate it. I'm Madeline, and I'm the host of the Happiest Sober Podcast. I got sober in my 20s after a decade of gray area drinking, and the greatest plot twist of all time was realizing that alcohol, the thing that I thought made my life the most happy and fun and exciting, was actually the exact thing preventing me from living my happiest and best life. My mom is 40 years sober, and she joins me on my podcast very often. I like to call her my part-time co-host, and I also bring you solo episodes where I share my top tips, tricks, and mindset shifts in sobriety, and lots of how twos for navigating all the things sober from weddings to parties to holidays to bachelorette parties to trips. I'm also joined by so many guests who come on and share their sober stories and they're all so, so inspiring. I'm here to show you that life doesn't end when you quit drinking. In fact, it's very much the opposite. And no matter what your relationship was with alcohol, life can be the absolute happiest when you're sober. New episodes come out every Tuesday. You can listen to Happiest Sober Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.